Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Ian Urbina's latest investigations has uncovered human rights and labor abuses in the vast Chinese foreign fishing fleet. An estimated four and a half thousand vessels. Urbina's style of reporting included boarding Chinese vessels, exchanging messages and bottles with the crew, and managing to obtain interviews with them. Uh, I can't think of any other journalist that's managed to do this. He heads the Outlaw Ocean Project, a non-profit journalism organization based in Washington, D.C. It focuses on reporting environmental and human rights crimes at sea. Ian Urbina joins me now. Hi, Ian. How are you? Thanks for having me. This is um, astonishing and fascinating. Tell me how you managed to get on board these boats. It was not a speedy process. It took uh, about four years. Um, Mostly it involved going out to sea on the high seas, international waters, so hundreds or thousands of miles from shore to the fishing grounds where Chinese squid vessels especially were focused. And, uh, and then talking with the captains, obviously through a translator, um, bridge to bridge, and sort of warming them up over multiple days, and then slowly approaching them and uh, talking with them and trying to convince them to let us come on board and, and uh, talk to them directly. In some cases, the ships fled. Uh, and in those instances, we trailed them in a fast boat and, as you said, put messages in a bottle that I then threw on the back deck of the vessel. Um, and in there, the message had a bunch of questions written in Chinese or Indonesian. A lot of the crew is from Indonesia with a pen. And in many cases, the crew wrote their responses and then threw the, threw the bottle back. So that was one tactic as a fallback option. But um, first we tried radio interviews, then we tried boarding, and then we tried bottle throwing. So one of the issues is that these people and many of these crew on the Chinese vessels are trapped. They sign up. Maybe they sign up for six months. But the ships can stay at sea for years now, right? And they're stuck. Yeah, I mean, this is like something out of a bygone era, you know, th- th- this workplace that it is really a distant is, water yeah. fishing vessel. Um, so a lot of these crew are recruited. They sign contracts that commit them to stay on board for at least two years. Often the ships don't even sea land, much less allow crew to get off board uh, during the whole time. Uh, mother ships, uh, refrigeration ships come and pick up the fish and restock the fishing vessels so the vessels can stay out at sea for that period. And it just has really dire consequences. You know, they, they run out of fresh fruits and vegetables and severe malnutrition is not uncommon, uh, even fatal um, malnutrition. We documented a bunch of cases of beriberi, which is a vitamin B1 deficiency, which is something that was stamped out on land 100 years ago, much like scurvy, but uh, is still killing guys on these ships. You followed in one story, you followed a young Indonesian man called Daniel Aritonang, and he ended up signing up for a Chinese vessel. He ended up dead. Can you tell me his story? Yeah, I mean, Daniel's story is compelling and in some ways typical. 
He came from a small village in Indonesia, graduated from high school, hoped to join the police academy, couldn't make the cut, couldn't find a job anywhere else. He and his best friend sort of made a pact that they might try to take a job that they'd heard about on a distant water fishing vessel. At least on paper, they, they stood to earn more than they could earn at any job on land in their village, you know. Uh, and so they signed up with a recruitment agency, a manning agency, got on a plane, flew uh, to Busan, South Korea, where they were assigned their ship. They boarded the ship and off they went. Um, and, you know, this was a squid vessel that um, circumvents the globe, more or less. It, it mostly targets the waters near the Falkland Islands and the waters near the Galapagos Islands. Um, and so Daniel and, and the other Indonesian crew uh, were on for a long tour um, violence on these ships is really common. Uh, and um, we interviewed a lot of the crew on the vessels and they recounted very severe beatings uh, for mistakes, for slights, for whatever. Um, and Daniel ultimately gets dropped off um, uh, in Uruguay, uh, in Montevideo port um, in the middle of the night. And his body is covered. He's still alive. His body was covered in bruises his feet and hands were horribly swollen, which is a sign of beriberi, the disease I mentioned before. Uh, and so I was in Uruguay reporting on this and, and he had been dropped off only shortly before. And, and I, I met the translator, an Uruguayan woman who had been uh, with him in his dying hours in the ambulance in the hospital. He died two hours after um, getting picked up and taken to the hospital. But this is a port, I'll tell you, that you know in the last decade, for the last seven years, on average, the ships coming into Montevideo Video port were on average dropping off one dead body every month and a half. Uh, and most of those are Chinese squid vessels. So this is, um, Daniel's story is illustrative of something much bigger and darker. Does anybody ever get prosecuted for these deaths? Pretty uncommon, you know, for lots of reasons, you know, the if you imagine this as a workplace, right, it's a factory, it happens to be floating and moving. But you know, this is a factory that's uh, off in outer space. So spot checks by lawyers or journalists or government officials is tough. You know, this if this was a factory in the middle of the Amazon or in the middle of New Zealand, you know, someone can come unannounced and knock on the door, not so on a distant water fishing vessel. Problem number one, problem number two is, you know, they're always in motion. Uh, The witnesses are also the culprits and the victims. Um, uh, the crime scene evidence floats to the bottom or disappears. The flag state is often not the same as the guy, the victim. So in other words, it's a Chinese flagship and probably the culprits are the officers in this case, Chinese, but the victims are Indonesian. And so who's going to investigate the crime? The Chinese probably won't be able to. And the Indonesians, the Chinese probably won't want to. And the Indonesians probably won't be able to, um, because any evidence or, or interviews of witnesses they might want to do or, in a different country where they don't have jurisdiction, there's no extradition. Uh, so for so many reasons, crimes like this get told occasionally in whispers, rarely reported by journalists, and even more rarely um, prosecuted or even investigated by law enforcement. I mean, there are layers of illegality going on here, presumably, because in the first instance, the Chinese ships are often fishing illegally. What constitutes illegal fishing? Illegal fishing um, is a bundle of things, uh, different types of scenarios. The most common you're going to find is incursions into other people's waters, right? So, um, and China's a big culprit of this, especially over this fleet, the squid fleet. 
near Argentina, routinely um, entering Argentinian waters where they don't have a permit. Again, same issue. There's no, there are rules, but there's no cops. You know, there, there's no law enforcement on the high seas. So even if they're, they're breaking rules, who's going to police it? Uh, so it happens pretty often. Uh, and, um, but other forms of illegal fishing, the ship turns off its transponder. So it goes dark. It, it disappears. That's illegal under Chinese law. The ship takes, it has a permit, but it takes more fish than it's allowed. The ship uses a net size that's the wrong size or wrong type of gear. So they're catching juvenile baby fish or non-target species, you know, sharks and turtles and rays and things they're not supposed to be targeting. Uh, so there are lots of other types, but the most common type is invading other people's waters. And off the coast of West Africa, as you've documented, China has hundreds of ships. Illegal fishing has been estimated, and I don't know how that estimate is reached, given that nobody knows what, how much they're catching. It's estimated to cost the region more than $9 billion a year. Can you address that for me? How do we know this? So, yeah, dark economies are hard to document, right? So illegality is always a speculative uh, mathematical game. Typically, in a case like this, you're looking at comparison of things. How much um, tonnage of fish is permitted to be pulled from the water? That's column A. Column B is how much was actually sold at market? If you've got a huge disparity between those two numbers, then the difference is probably going to be, okay, maybe that stuff was trucked in or maybe it came in through some other import method. But if all of that fish is supposed to be coming to marketplace and is supposed to be documented and there's a huge difference in the two numbers, you know that your difference is probably illegally caught um, uh, uh, fish. Um, so that's one way that they usually come up with these numbers. And then what is the estimate loss and revenue from lots of different angles, the loss and revenue for the local economy who would be selling that stuff and, and having a livelihood, the loss and revenue from a tax perspective for the country where the government should be taking a cut, etc. It's not only on the ships, of course, um, that you've focused on illegalities. You say that the Uyghur people, one of China's largest ethnic minorities, are often forced into the factories to process the fish. Can you tell me what you found about that? Sure. I mean, so, you know, the world is in a transition politically with regard to the Muslim minority population in Xinjiang, China. So far Western province, um, Uyghurs are the biggest population of Muslim minorities there, but there are other Turkmens and other types. Um, and it's a very repressed uh, um, province. Um, in the U.S., any products that um, are imported to the U.S. that in part or in whole have been touched by Uyghur labor, labor is banned. Uh, and so it's a categorical outlook on Uyghur labor, on Xinjiang labor, not unlike North Korean labor. Because the context here, and Europe is moving in this direction with its outlook on uh, Uyghur labor. So you don't have to prove, sort of like child labor, you don't have, if, if you found a child working, a 12-year-old working in a factory, and you interviewed the child and you said, um, did you receive a wage? Yes. Are you happy with the job? Yes. Could you still say the child is illegal for being in the factory? 
Yes, because in most places in the world, child labor categorically, whether they're paid or happy, is irrelevant. North Korean and Uyghur labor is moving into that category as well. So any workers that have been transferred out of Xinjiang province to other provinces by the state in any role are considered illegal labor. We found Shandong province, the opposite side of China, on the far east of the country, um, along the shore. Xinjiang is landlocked. Um, suddenly we found there are thousands of Uyghurs that have been transferred from their province by buses and planes and airplanes by the government to work in these factories in Shandong. Do they have the option of saying no when the government comes and knocks on their door and says, you need full, you need to be employed and we've got a job for you? They do not have that option. So it's forced. So all we had to do is document the presence of these workers in these factories and then connect the supply chain dots, the trade records that show where that seafood is going. And the seafood's going to Europe and 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 the U.S. Uh, to major brand, you know, grocery stores and restaurants. So this, that's what we did. We, we documented it. This is an extraordinarily dangerous um, business, Ian. And in your latest episode in your documentary series, you did one called Where Killers Go Free. And you told the story of a video on a cell phone that was left in a taxi showing four men clinging to some wreckage they were gunned down. Interpol came to you to ask if you could help get to the bottom of this. People are being killed. What was the outcome of that particular story? That was a slow-moving beast. You know, that, that I started when I was at the New York Times. I started investigating that at, in 2015, and it took about seven years, but at the end of it, um, uh, uh, the captain, we found the, the captain of the ship who ordered uh, those killings. We, we figured out the name of the ship and the company that, that owned that ship and, and other ships who were on the scene participating, the name of the private security firm that was holding the weapons, um, and a little bit um, about the, the guys in the water who were killed. Uh, and when we pushed all that information over multiple stories over many years, ultimately the the Taiwanese government um, uh, arrested, charged, convicted um, the captain of the ship and sent him away for over 10 years. So that was a win, but wins must come quite rarely given the extent of the problem. They are very rare. You've also spoken about... The slavery in the Thai context, Thailand, is notorious for its slave workers on its boats. Is there a particular reason why you focused on China or simply because it's got the biggest fleet? No, I mean, you've obviously done your homework. So, yes, you're quite right. I mean, this sea slavery is not a Chinese problem or a Thai problem. Um, this is a... Uh, world of of the oceans problem and a, and a distant water fishing problem, um, and uh, indeed the the original work I'd done focused on the South China Sea and the Thai fleet and their use of trafficked and captive Cambodians and Laotians. Uh, deep deep problem there. Um, I shifted attention to China for the reasons you cited. China is unequivocally the seafood superpower. You know, they have the largest fleet by a factor of 20. 
they have more than 6,500 distant water vessels. The next closest distant water fleet has under 300. So China owns the high seas when it comes to fishing. So you really have to look at them and figure out what they're doing in terms of ocean conservation and environmental crimes and then the human rights. And then secondly, China is also the superpower because of its processing infrastructure. So even vessels that are flagged to New Zealand or the US or the or UK or wherever that are perhaps fishing in their own waters are often shipping that catch over to China to have it processed for cheap, you know, labor in the plants there. And then it's frozen and sent back to the market in New Zealand or the US. And that's a big worry because that's why we documented the online captive labor in the factory, because that shows that much of us in, in the rest of the world are also complicit in, in these crimes. Anyone who's watched the Ali Tabrisi documentary, Sea Spiracy, probably stopped eating fish a long time ago. Um, I mean, it made some claims which have been challenged, but in general, it depicts a picture of something you don't really want to participate in. Would you recommend people stop eating fish? <laughs> I mean, I never, I never do that. You know, I, I have my own, um, the line between a journalist and an advocate, I think does need to be somewhat respective if I'm going to stay in the professional journalism. So I always stop short of, um, trying to counsel folks, even though I think it's important, people, readers, listeners want to know, well, what can I do? And I always then try to pivot and say, well, here are experts of various sorts, many of whom don't agree with each other, but I can put them forward and they can offer you counsel on what to buy, what not to buy, etc. I personally don't eat meat or fish, um, but I haven't for years and years and years. But then again, I do if I'm on a ship and it's put in front of me and it's the only thing we've got to eat. So I'm not rigid about it in my own personal habits, but I am a vegetarian um, for better or for worse, largely for climate reasons, to be frank. Um, but I don't ever proselytize that to others. I just say, you know, it is one one way for people as caring consumers to try to distance themselves from these concerns. Yes, you can you can you can vote with your pocket you know, with your wallet. Um, that is one option. Um, is another consideration um, that you presumably want to engage the fishing industry in better practice. If you went around saying don't eat fish, you've lost them, right? Yeah, yeah, quite right. And, and it's also complicated, right? Like don't eat fish, even in and of itself is complicated because th there are lots of different types of, you know, the, 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 the type of fish that doesn't run away, for example. So, um, you know, uh, crustaceans are uh, often politically, environmentally, and from a labor perspective, very different than uh, tuna or shrimp or squid, uh, calamari. Um, so you need a little bit of nuance. You also have to think about the geography. Okay, so if you besmirch all fishing. What about developing world nations that are subsistence living off of their fishing and it's very local? Are you saying even those folks shouldn't be engaging in that? You know, so I, I don't ever go that far. Uh, and I also do think, you know, I need to, like you say, engage with the industry, the big players. Um, and uh, I, so I, I try to just uh, put forward other people's perspectives on how to solve the problems. In terms of the environment, though, it seems that 
we cannot continue to harvest fish as, and I use the collective we because I suppose we're all collaborative in it. Do you have any view on sea spiracies, for example, claim that the oceans might be empty by 2050? This is the claim that's been rejected by many. Yeah, I mean, I, I never comment on other folks' journalism. Fair so enough. I'll, I'll, yeah, I just. Um, All right, uh, let's so, but, let's let's yeah. erase any mention of sea spiracy. Right. No, Do your you question. Do you think is, yeah. that the amount of fish being taken at the moment is in any way sustainable? No. Yeah, that's an easier question. Is the current rate of industrial fishing sustainable? No. Without yeah, I can easily answer that one. Uh, and every expert of differing shades that I talk to agrees on that. Um, a third of the world's stocks are at or beyond the point of collapse. That's not sustainable. And that is a poor undercount of the health of things because most of the world's oceans are not actually assessed. So no, the current rate is not sustainable. So what, what could possibly happen? <laughs> well, I mean, there are lots of things that could happen. I mean, I think climate change is actually the, the faster driving variable in the health of the oceans and the decimation of marine life you know we've got plastic pollution we've got you know oil and gas drilling we've got seabed mining we've got overfishing and and large consumption all huge concerns but we also have climate change that in one fell swoop could uh get way in front of those drains on the ocean so you know i'm not going to play it out all the way to its possible ends because there are lots of different ends, but there there are some bleak scenarios where the oceans could begin collapsing um, quite fast. I mean, do you think that, that the, the UN trees on biodiversity is, is going to do any good? Is there anything that, that we can do? Yeah, I think that, I mean, yes, I think that biodiversity treaty is, is quite a huge step in the right direction is it perfect? Is it going to solve everything? No. Um, but is it a huge uh, victory? I think it is for governance, you know, for not for ocean advocacy, but for better management of this space. Um, so, yeah, I think. And what can we do? You and I, average people, look, uh, lots of things. We're, we wear lots of different hats, right? We're We're buyers, right? So we can do our homework and try to make some better choices about what we buy and consume, um, just as you're hinting. We're taxpayers. We can you know, try to lean on lawmakers uh, in various ways to, to lean towards the direction we think they should be going on these issues. We're donors. We can support organizations that are doing things that they, we think are worthy and to everyone's benefit. Um, we talk to, we're interlocutors. We talk to our kids and our spouses and our friends, our family. Um, so inform ourselves and sort of sway minds by talking to people about it. So we have lots of different roles. And I think in all those roles, we can all make a little bit of a difference. It's easy both to offload all responsibility to countries like China, which have, you know, over four and a half thousand boats out there. But nevertheless, they do seem to make everything else pale into insignificance in terms of action, do they not? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're huge. And this is why we took an extra year on this investigation to do the boring and hard but consequential work of connecting the crimes to the consumers, because that's important for you and me to see exactly 
that we are not demonizing those guys over there, but that we actually are funding this very problem. And those guys are responding to market and we're the market. Uh, so I really think it's really big companies that have the best chance and most responsibility to um, reckon with our investigation. And we're already seeing it. There's in the last five days since the investigation came out, we've already seen huge movement from companies dropping certain factories. Have you? Um, Tell me about yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, these are not names you probably would know. I certainly didn't before, but big names of companies that run key factories. They're sort of the middlemen between the factories on the ground in China, in Shandong province that process the stuff and the importers over on our, you know, patches of land that are receiving the stuff. The middlemen are big nameless players. And in the last four days, we've seen a bunch of these middlemen drop the factories that we cited and put the evidence forward um, have either forced labor in the form of North Koreans or Uyghurs in their plants and or forced labor on their vessels. So we're already seeing some consequences downstream. And you're, today, about six hours ago, European Parliament, who had called and had a closed door meeting with a bunch of my staff about a month ago and wanted to be debriefed on it, they're considering a big law um, uh, that will tighten up their import regulations and sort of how much oversight they give on what's allowed into the EU with regard to forced labor or concerns about forced labor and Uyghur labor. So we've debriefed them and said, these are things that you guys don't have that you might want to consider. These are things, this is the evidence of what we found, et cetera. And just today, two lawmakers uh, put out press releases saying now that it's public, you know, we're pushing in the direction of tightening up this law even more. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to be a... A Debbie Downer, but as you pointed out in your reporting, the United States already has strict laws forbidding the importation of goods produced yep. from North Korean or Uyghur labor. And you found that companies employing Uyghurs and North Koreans have exported at least 47,000 tons of seafood, including some 17% of all squid sent to the United States. Yeah. No, you're, 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 you know, hang me with my own rope. Sorry. You're, you are quite right. You know, no, it's, it's, uh, I, I thank you for it because right. yes, it's my own reporting and it's quite right. The law is not being as enforced as it should be. And that's why, you know, journalists have a important role to play. Yeah. Do you, I mean, this is, this is a tough job. It's a tiring job. Are you getting enough traction? Are you getting enough wins? under your belt to make you feel like it's worth carrying on? Yeah, you know, ask me day to day, week to week, but overall, yes, quite. And these days, you know, um, now that this investigation's out there and it's really picking up steam, um, uh, yeah, I, I f I'm feeling very happy with it. Uh, um, but, you know, the investigations that take this long, again, now I'm speaking to you as a fellow journalist, you're, you're sitting on an egg for four years. That's, that's a long time. And you start wondering, is this really going to have the impact to justify over a million dollar investment in four years of my life and eight trips to sea and, you know, a lot of time away from my kids and wife. And, um, but now that it's out and it's really, really doing well, it feels worth it. It's excellent to talk to you. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Ian Urbina, who is the director and founder of the Outlaw Ocean Project.